0: morning. I'm glad you're here this morning. I hope uh, you're comfortable, that you've got good seats, that your ears are good and cleaned out, because this is Music Sunday. The lesson that you've been handed will last probably three weeks, I suspect. I'll tweak it a little bit in the next coming weeks uh, because I'm not satisfied with all of it. Today, we're only going to get through a beginning section of it. And so um, uh, there's just too much fun for us not to enjoy it. And there are ways that we're going to learn some things culturally that help us better appreciate the New Testament. But we can only do that if we take our time. So get comfortable. Take your shoes off. Rest. Get ready. And let me start by telling you about a case I was working on this last week. There's a company nearby that that makes and sells uh, uh, very high-tech equipment. This is equipment that's used in putting together uh, computers and, and making uh, drives. And, and, and everything's got to be pristine. It's got to be clean. It, it, it's got to be uh, uh, just absolutely nothing foreign can enter into the process or everything's ruined. The machines are made... Over in the Far East. And when the machines are needed, the local company calls up their Far East office and says send us 40 of those machines, model number whatever. The machines are carefully crated and then put on ships to transport them from Singapore to the United States. Now, the company, before they let this happen, they're dealing with millions of dollars of machinery, they buy an insurance policy. This is an insurance policy to make sure that these crates arrive to the ultimate customer in the pristine condition they were shipped in. You with me? All right, so they call up. We need 40 of these. They've got to go to Austin. Austin. The materials get crated, put together, put on the ships, hauled overseas. They come into port in Houston. They get downloaded, moved to a train. The train takes them to Austin. They're being unpacked by the customer. And almost half of them are ruined because of water. They're rusted. They have mold and mildew. And there's even some standing water inside some of these crates. So the company goes to the insurance company and says, you got to pay up. Insurance company looks at it and says, no, we don't think we owe the money. So now we're in a fight. Enter the lawyers. Our position is, These were damaged during transportation, and that's why they need to be paid. Their position is, no, 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 that's not seawater that ruined them. All of the water and all of the water damage comes from the fact that these were packed in wooden crates, and the wood must have been fresh enough to where it weeped moisture during the transit voyage. That's the fight. Now, my job as a lawyer, my job is to do two things. If you went to law school, we'd call it discovery and trial. Two things. Number one, I've got to investigate this thoroughly. I need to test the water. I need to find out is it seawater? Does it have salt in it? Does it is it salty? I need to take pictures. I need to check the corrosion. I need to talk to whoever packed the wood and find out what kind of wood they did pack. I need to hire some investigator's scientist type who can talk about what the humidity level is of the wood. I need to know how they were shipped across. And were they outside on the deck or were they below deck? I need to investigate thoroughly. You with me? And then the second thing is when I get to trial, I'm going to need to present all of this. And my presentation needs to be a very honest presentation. Whoops. I need to present this honestly. I need to tell the jury, here are the witnesses. Here are the facts. This is what they show. Now, if I were a sorry, no good lawyer, which... There may be a few. I cannot speak for all the members of the bar. But if I were a sorry, no good lawyer, I might just do a shoddy investigation. Or I might do a thorough investigation, but then do a shoddy presentation. I might try and pull the wool over your eyes if you were on the jury. Trick you. Do lawyer hocus pocus. But those are the really bad lawyers. Those are the lawyers that go broke. And those are the lawyers that never win. I don't want to be a bad lawyer. I don't want to go broke. And I don't want to never win. So I don't do that. And good lawyers. You talk to Mike Moriarty in this class. The same thing I do. Mike will tell the truth to the jury. Because if you don't have credibility on the small things even. You'll lose credibility on the big ones. It's, it's like uh, 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 we were hearing from Dr. Patterson this morning. If I know God has kept his promise for 4,000 years to Israel, I can trust he would keep his promise with me. But if God's not going to keep his promises with anybody else, why would I rely on him? Credibility is extremely important. Does this make sense? The reason I bother you with this is because Luke was not an eyewitness to the events He wrote about in his gospel. And Luke makes it really clear that Luke had a job to do. Luke's job was to investigate matters thoroughly. He went to the actual eyewitnesses and he talked to them. Luke went and explored and and, and didn't just... Oh, he may have been from Antioch. And there was certainly a church at Antioch. And he writes a lot about the church in Antioch. But he doesn't simply do that. Luke goes to Jerusalem. He goes on mission trips with Paul, with Mark. Luke has exposure to the apostles. He has exposure to the family of Jesus. We talked about this in the other class where we did the introduction to Luke. So I'll refer you back there. But Luke investigated thoroughly, and then his job was to present honestly. Luke made a presentation to us in two books, the book of Luke and the book of Acts. And for Luke, his credibility was very important. When I was in school, in high school, I had the most godly, tremendous teacher for junior English that God ever bestowed on planet Earth. Her name was Sharon, well, it still is, Sharon Kingston. She's now retired. Phenomenal woman of God in a public school. And she made no bones about it. Sharon Kingston made us write our junior year a, um, a paper. It's the big chore for your junior year. And in the paper, we had to write quotations, and we had to use the right form to cite the quotation so someone could look it up. We do the same thing in legal briefs. It's the reason I put footnotes in your lesson. So you can go check to see if Lanier got it right. Or you can go read more about it to get background. Now, that is a modern way we handle these issues. The ancients cared about such things, but they did not have the Chicago Manual of Style to follow. But when you read Luke, Luke very clearly is giving names and places and events and times because he wants people to verify his story. He's writing at a time where the eyewitnesses are still alive. And so he puts his information in a form that Matthew doesn't. In a form that Luke, Mark doesn't. And in a form that John doesn't. It's a form that begs you to go investigate. And I love that about it. So when we look now at the content of Luke, I want us to do it with our eye toward not only hearing the story, but the confidence that we can get that he went and found this out. Experiment in your brain and think, how did he do this? What was it like? What was it like to go hear the family of, of, uh, uh, of, of Jesus talk? Can you imagine a doctor getting to sit With Mary and discuss the virgin birth. Luke being a doctor. Certainly he's going to ask some questions. He gets information and he puts data into his gospel that we don't get anywhere else. If you were to take the gospels and divide them up. Luke's material. Twenty-three percent of what you find in Luke, you'll find only in Matthew. Mark doesn't have it. There's 23, or or Mark's got some of it, but but at least, let me take a step back. I haven't given you the right statistic explanation. Twenty-three percent of what you'll find in Luke, you'll also find in Matthew. Some of that in Matthew and Mark. Mark... Forty one percent. Uh yeah, we got it. Okay, there. Mark, forty-one percent of what you find in Luke, you'll find in Mark. And some of that also in Matthew. They bleed over. I haven't pulled that out. But the point is, in Luke, thirty-five percent of the material, you don't have it anywhere else. Thirty five percent of that material in Luke is only in Luke. And that's what I want us to examine. Let's examine that content that's exclusive to Luke that he got from his investigation. In his thorough reporting that he gives to us. Let's get all of that and let's look at it. Because it tells us some of the emphasis that Luke was driving at. Because Luke made it a point to put material in his. Mark's already been written. Luke has Mark's gospel. As he's writing, that's some of his input. But he, Luke sculpts his gospel as a work of art to include some things and to restructure some things. So how are we going to do this? What are we talking about? Well, let's divide it up. First thing I'll tell you is Luke has four to five songs that you'll find in Luke that you don't find anywhere else in the New Testament. And it's four to five because scholars fuss over whether or not these couple of verses are a song. We'll talk about that in a minute. But there are four or five songs. Luke also has a a, a group of parables that you do not find and events that you do not find on the History Channel of Matthew or Mark. Um, So we've got Luke with, with more songs. We've got Luke with... Uh, uh, parables and events what else do we have from Luke we have a little bit of a different structure Luke will tweak things and he'll move things around to make a different point here or a different point there I want us to go through those things and your lesson that you've got handed out to you goes through those things but today all we're going to have time for are the four to five songs um How many of you enjoy music? Okay. We live in a really neat time of civilization and history. Uh, When our son was home over the holidays, he told me something that I just really enjoyed hearing. He said, Dad, did I tell you about my playlist that I did? I called it my presidential playlist. Now, if you're under the age of 25, I assure you, you know what a playlist is. If you're above the age of 25, the odds are you know what a playlist is. But the further you get from age 25, the decreasing odds that you know what a playlist is. A playlist is his computer-generated list of songs that he will play together that have some coherent theme. Here's what he did. He took the top 100 chart, which has been around for quite a while... And he started with the first term of President Eisenhower. And he put the number one charted song in the top 40 in America. And went Eisenhower first term, Eisenhower second term. JFK, LBJ, Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford, remember him? Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan. George Bush, the first, H.W. Jim, uh, what's the, the guy from the South? Bill Clinton. <laughs> George Bush the next. President Obama. went through each one of them and had the number one songs on the playlist. And then he listened to them over and over. And he, I said, what were you driving for? He said, I wanted to see how music changed. Popular music. And he says, it's real interesting. In the 50s, it all sort of sounds alike. Early 60s, sort of sounds alike. He said, and then for five weeks in a row, you've got these Beatles songs. Actually longer than that. And he says, Dad, they just don't sound like anything that had been on the chart before. It, it, the, it, it's just a corner that was turned. And he said, you hear about how important the Beatles were, you just don't realize it until you listen to the stuff that was going on the radio until the Beatles. Now, I say that to say music. I love music. I thought that was a thrilling thing. I have a question for you. If you could hear what those songs in Luke sounded like in the first century... Would you like to? I would too. But we can't. (laughs) I don't have that for you because I don't know. But I'll tell you what I did do. Archaeologists found uh, kind of a... Think of it as an equivalent of a tombstone in ancient Greece. And the best identity that they can give to this date-wise is probably the first century, about the time of Jesus and the early church in Luke. And this has the oldest complete song with musical notation so that we can figure out roughly what it sounded like. Now, it's Greek. It's not Hebrew. But it's called the Song of Cyclos, and here's what the lyrics translate to in English. Remember, this is like on a tombstone, okay? While you live, dance and sing, be joyful, for life is short and time carries away the prize. There are musical notes. The musical notation, I've got four lines up here. The first line and the third line are taking the musical notation and putting them into Greek letters for us to look look at. The second line and the fourth line are the actual Greek words of the song. Now, I've taken the melody and I've put it into a modern key. So anybody out there who can sight read is welcome to come up on stage right now and sing this song. No takers? Okay, I found someone else to sing it for us. Are you ready to hear what a song sounded like at the time Luke wrote his gospel? Here it is.
1: Second line.
0: That's the oldest song we've got. Yeah, kind of cool, isn't it? Yeah. I think it must have probably been on the top 40, but that's even pre-Beatles. So, now, I want to shift gears. We also have from the Dead Sea Scrolls some songs that people have tried to put together with what Second Temple chanting would likely be. It does not come with as thorough a notation, so we're a little less confident. But I want you to hear nu, sing with joy from the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is, time-wise, in the same vintage, same era, but Hebrew now instead of Greek. You ready? All right, here it goes. Oh, no. interesting all right now we are then you're in the first century mode you've got your first century playlist all we need to do is fill it in with a few more songs that brings us to Luke Luke puts these songs in the first two chapters almost like a modern musical I mean you almost feel like you're watching the music man and uh professor Harold Hill is on the train and uh, uh, all, all of us are, no, I guess these were the people on the train, talking about Professor Harold Hill, or take the musical of your choice, le Mis. And the actors all of a sudden just break into song to explain what's been happening. That's what the first two chapters of Luke almost read like. So you've got narrative, and then all of a sudden punches in a song, and then you go back to narrative, and then punches in a song and then you go back to narrative so with that in mind let's look at it luke begins his first four verses are his introduction and it's written in pristine greek it's it's actually maybe the prettiest sentence of greek in the entire new testament it's it's in a classical greek form and it's just outstanding but that's all he says is, hey, I'm writing this in honor of you, Theophilus and others, so that you will know the, the you know why we believe what we believe. This is my thorough investigation being documented for you. I've talked to eyewitnesses who have themselves become testimonies of who Jesus is, and I've presented this to you. Go back and check my sources. After he does that, he Luke shifts and starts writing a Greek that's very much just translated Hebrew almost. It's it's, it's got a lot of Hebraisms in it, the way he writes it. And he starts out with the birth of John the Baptist. This is material you don't find in the other Gospels. In the days of Herod, there's a priest who's serving in the temple named Zechariah. Now, an angel appears, it's the angel Gabriel, appears to Zechariah... And says, you're going to have a son. You and your wife, Elizabeth. Zachariah says, I don't know if you've checked, but we're too old for that. Angel says, duh, it's, this is real. Zachariah says, how do I know it's going to really happen? And the angel says, well, how about this? You'll be mute until it does. No more talky-talky. In fact, while it says mute... If you read through, it looks like he's also deaf because people are having to make hand gestures to him. So he's going to be made deaf and mute till it happens. That's a fun one, as Dr. Patterson was saying. That's a fun one to go back and explain to your wife. So he goes back, and uh, um, when he goes back, he explains it to his wife. We don't know how, but as best as he can because he's not able to talk. His wife gets pregnant, and she, she's kind of embarrassed, you get the impression, because she is an elderly lady. And, uh, you know, how many, I don't know how many of you women are, say, 65 years old. But if you are 65 or older, how would you like to explain to everybody you're pregnant? I mean, it's just, just kind of like, wow. Wow. Oh, son of a gun, you! Um, so she hides it for five months, and uh, um, the scene, scene shifts. Now Luke says, "Okay." Meanwhile, over here, there's this girl named Mary, who's betrothed to Joseph. And I've explained in a footnote the, the how we know about and what we know about the betrothal process. But that means that they're contractually married in a sense. But they are not officially married with a ceremony or a consummation. But it's the kind of thing where they can't dissolve without divorce. It's the kind of thing where neither one of them can be active with another without it being considered adultery. Not simply fornication. The bride price has already been paid. And so Mary gets a visit from the same angel, Gabriel, who announces to her, as as Dr. Patterson said this morning, you're going to have a baby. And she says, how can that be? I'm a Parthenos. I've not known any man. I'm I'm, I'm a virgin. He says, well, it's going to happen because it's of the Spirit of God. And then she's got the process of explaining that. So in the process of all of that, Mary decides she's going to go visit her cousin. Her cousin happens to be Elizabeth. The woman who's five months pregnant but is keeping it secret. So she goes to visit her older cousin Elizabeth. Mary is probably young teen years. So Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. And when she goes in, the baby in Elizabeth's womb, who is John the Baptist to be born later... But the baby leaps and Elizabeth expresses praise and says, oh, blessed are you. That's the one that scholars fuss over whether or not it's a song. Mary hears these words. Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? So Elizabeth is prophesying. By the way, there is an argument made that may be right. Oh, I got to at least get through the songs. I'm sorry. We've got 17 minutes. Okay, look. Bottom line is, go read Acts 1 and 2 where, Pete, where the Spirit descends on Pentecost and people are speaking in tongues and nobody knows what's going on. And Peter says to them, hey, this is what the prophet Joel was talking about when he said, young men will dream dreams and have visions and, and the, your sons will prophesy and your daughters will prophesy. That aligns what Luke writes in Acts 2, aligns with what Luke starts with in Luke 1 and 2. These are the sons and the daughters prophesying. These are the last days. It's a sign that they were entering the last days. We're still in the last days. The last days of the days of Jesus. And so there's a prophecy there from Elizabeth to Mary. Mary hears this and Mary responds with what scholars call the Magnificat. This is um, actually... It's, I'm going to put 143, 44 up here in a minute. But the Magnificat goes all the way through to verse 55, okay? The Magnificat is a Latin name for the Song of Mary. Jerome, late 300s, early 400s, is translating the Greek. He translates it into the language of his day, which was Latin. We call that the Vulgate today because it's from vulgar are common Latin. So most people were speaking Latin by the late 300s, early 400s in the western part of, of Christianity. And so Jerome translates it into Latin. The church, the western church from which we Baptists have come, the western church had the Latin as its Bible for a thousand plus years. So these are songs that have a Latin name that's taken from the first line of the Latin translation. This is not the Greek. If we were doing this in Greek, it would be megaluni or lenai, depending on how you pronounce your upsilon, but it would be that instead of the magnificat. Here's the magnificat. Mary says the following. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. From now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He's shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud and the thoughts of their heart. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones. He's exalted those of humble estate and filled the hungry with good things. The rich he sent away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers. It's a wonderful, wonderful little song written by this young lady, inspired by the, the Holy Spirit. And I want you to notice a couple of things in the song. We'll come back to it. But the first thing I want you to notice is the parallelism. Well, let's just keep it up here. The parallelism. That's a sign of Hebrew poetry. You've got one line and then another line that parallels it in a way to give extra nuanced meaning to whatever's being said so my soul magnifies the lord is the same as my spirit rejoices in god my savior so that tells us if you want to magnify god rejoice in god those two things run on the same track together he's looked on the humble estate of his servant now generations will call me blessed the fact That she's called blessed is not because she was special. It's because God looked upon her. It's because God was special. This nuance, you can work through this and find it. It's a beautiful thing. A second thing you'll find here, the word placement. We lose a little of that in the English. But we've got some some folks in here who are budding Greek scholars. So I just thought let's throw the Greek up there just to really make you happy. Okay, so this is, I hate to write in this one, this is, this is what Mary says. She says, in Latin, magnificat, in Greek, megaluni, um, she says, uh, great, or, or praise, or honor, my soul, the Lord. See, the first word there is praise, or honor, or glorify, or magnify, in Greek, Words wear signs around them to tell you what part of speech they are. You don't put the subject first and then the verb and then the indirect object or the direct object and blah, blah. They don't have to do that in Greek because everything wears a sign that proudly says, I'm the subject. <laughs> I'm the direct object. And so you learn to read those signs. They're usually endings on a word, but sometimes they are found in other places. And and as a result, the writer can move the words any order they want, by and large, to put emphasis on certain words. So this starts out with the verb. Magnifies! My soul, the Lord. Uh, 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 be, um um Extremely joyful. Be very glad, uh, my spirit, upon the God of my salvation. Or toward the God of my salvation. And now, having magnified and been extremely joyful in rapid succession in the Greek, you have the verb that has God built into it as the subject. Because the emphasis is on what God has done. That's the emphasis. This, you want to know one of the little tags, the signs that they wear? This ending right there, E-N, on a verb often means he. Okay? So, um, it's he who's looked upon me with care. It's he who's done these great things. It's It's he. It's he. It's he. It's he, and every verse starts out with, he has done this. He has done this. And it's very, very, very powerful. I'll also tell you, and we don't have time for this, but I've put in the lesson, um, if we can go back to the, to the uh, Elmo. Um, I've put in the lesson, Old Testament Echoes. Some people say, oh, there's no way a 14-year-old girl wrote a song like that. Well, A, the Holy Spirit inspired her, and B, actually it looks like a 14-year-old, a very talented, gifted one. But a 14-year-old, at least to some degree, because she took phrases from the Old Testament, phrases from the Psalms. She especially took the song of Hannah, who was Samuel's mother, who wasn't, you know... Hannah says, my heart exalts in the Lord. Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. I can guarantee you almost anybody in here with a 14-year-old daughter, if you told her, write a song, the odds are she'd take Taylor Swift's songs... And imitate them as closely as she could. And that's what you see here. Talk no more so very proudly, Hannah said. He scattered the proud and the thoughts of their heart and brought down the mighty. The bows of the mighty are broken, but, on the fee- but the feeble bind on strength. He's broken down the mighty. He's exalted those of humble estate. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased. He's filled the hungry with good things. The rich he sent away empty. You see the echoes? All right. So I got a version of the Magnificat for you. But I don't have one in the old time stuff. So this is one from our our friend of this class and reader of these lessons, John Michael Talbot. And since this is going on the internet, I have his permission to put this on there. Here's John Michael's uh, putting into English some of the Magnificat. The song itself, six minutes, but uh, here you've got My some of it.
1: soul proclaims the greatness of
0: Um, and so the, the song punctuates. Well, the story continues. And it's a Christmas story. I don't need to go into detail with you. But it's the story we get from Luke. Um, Mary goes on her way. John the Baptist. The time comes. Elizabeth's womb opens. She gives birth to John the Baptist. Everybody's gathered around. Let's name him Zechariah after his father. Whose name, I might add, means Yahweh remembered. Let's name him Zachariah after his father. And, and Elizabeth says, no, no, no. We're Name, name him name him We're gonna name him in Greek John or American Greek John. We're gonna name Iones, we're gonna name him John. Okay? And then no 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 we're gonna name him. You gotta name him after his dad. At which point Zachariah says, Hey, 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 bring me a writing tablet. You know, he signals, gets a little writing tablet, a little wooden tablet, and he writes down on it, his name will be John. Everybody says, oh, his name is going to be John. And just like that, Zachariah is healed. And he's able for the first time in over nine months, assuming it was a full term, he's able for the first time to talk and to hear. And the sign has come true. And he has a song himself. The Benedictus is what it's called from the Latin. And it's uh, in your text and you can find it. But it is the same thing. It is a song of praise to God for what he's done. And I've given you material about it, but we've got to scoot on and we won't make it through these. I will tell you that uh, it, it's got a great tie to Isaiah 40. That his son, Isaiah 43, is the one, is the passage where Isaiah says, that make way in the wilderness, one is coming. Prepare the way of the Lord. And it's very clear that's who John the Baptist is. And this song echoes Isaiah over and over, as does the writing of Luke around this song. Luke does not want us to miss that, nor does Zechariah. So we have that. Now, ultimately, Jesus is born as well. When Jesus is born, he's born in a manger, which can refer to the trough where he's laid, or it's actually also the feeding area. So he's just there was no room at the inn. The Greek word for inn does not mean a hotel six or motel six. It's not a four-season, three-season, two-season, or one-season. What it likely means is a guest room in a relative's house. But there wasn't any room in the house, so they just decided to camp outside under the stars... They're outside under the stars with the animals. And the shepherds are keeping their flock nearby. And when the shepherds are there, the heavens open and a a selection of the host of heavens, innumerable angels, are singing. And the song that they are singing is called the Gloria. And that's from the first word in the Latin. You will not be surprised if we go to the Elmo real quick to see that the first word in the Latin is carried forward pretty good into English. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He's pleased. Glory to God in the highest. It's got the heavenly glory to God, but then on earth it's got peace in the sense of Hebrew shalom. That's not no more wars, that's a relationship peace. That's the peace between God and man. That's the wonder of the Christ child. And so we've got that here in the Gloria. And I pulled another John Michael version of the Gloria, if we could. Let's see. This may work. Boom. Can we turn it up some?
1: Yeah, this is like angels. Glory to God in the highest, peace to his people on earth.
0: Have these songs repeatedly. Now, Luke doesn't go into a lot of the details about Jesus. and It doesn't go into any detail about Jesus and the family going to Egypt. Some scholars, there are lots of skeptics who don't want to believe the Bible. They just have a heart that does not want to believe the Bible. So they read this and they're looking at it like it should all fit together. Like it's some transparency, one on top of the other. So that it all reads just identical. Like someone was making photocopies in the first century and putting four of them in there in case your bible loses three but that's not what we have in the gospels god is not so silly to put that's not what he's about We have four beautiful portraits of what was going on there in Jesus and in his time. And and Luke's not about chasing down, though they went to Egypt to avoid the slaughter of the innocents. Because to Matthew and his Jewish audience, that was a memory and that was a hard time. And that was something that they needed to hear and wanted to hear. But for Luke... He's not talking about that. That's not his emphasis, and that's not the way he structures his stuff. So if you get troubled over some of those details, we'll probably throw it into a last lesson on Luke where we look at why those stories seem to be different. But I've put some of it in there for you today anyway so you can get a gander of it. Luke does tell us about Jesus not only going to the temple for presentation when he was 40 days old and purification, but he also tells us about Jesus when he's 12. Going to the temple. The first time at 40 days, there's a prophet there named Simeon. And Simeon's so excited because he had been promised he would not die until he had seen the light of Israel. Until he had seen the Messiah. And Simeon understands by the Holy Spirit that this Christ child being presented is in fact that. So in Latin, he says... Let's see if we can get to the Latin. Nuc which means now i'm released now i can go i've seen the christ child and he gives a prophetic song there and i wish i had time to go into it with you because this was a man of the word his prophetic song that he gives has um ties to isaiah in the words itself And then when he talks to Mary, he's the one who says to Mary prophetically that not only will your Christ child suffer, but the sword will also pierce your heart. Now that prophetic word's not a literal sword piercing Mary's heart. That prophetic word is an expression for the pain that Mary would feel when the Christ child is on the cross and she's having to watch it. And uh, uh, it says Mary treasured these things up in her heart. So those, that gives you a flavor of the songs. I'm sorry that it, it, I didn't have time to play them all for you. Because we have different versions of all of them. But you've got the lesson. You can read it. And then we'll save the rest of the stuff and pick up next week. Here are your points for home. One of the themes that we'll see in Luke. I'll take out a Mary song. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Luke shows God to be the master of the turnaround. The master of making up, down, and down, up. Luke will say it over and over and over again. God values the lowly, not the high. The high he brings down. God values the weak, not the strong. That idea of God helps those who help themselves, it's not in Luke. Luke says God helps the helpless and leaves the rest to help themselves. It is God's intention to find those things that are demeaned in this world. Those things that are of, of lesser status to the world. Those are the things that God not only values, but God exalts. So what does that mean for me? Jesus turns this world upside down. I want to be on... on, on the where, where, Look... I don't want to exist on my own power. I don't want to exist on my own brain. I don't want to exist on my own strength. I don't want to exist on the merit of my family. I don't want to exist on any of that. I don't want my bread today because I was able to work hard enough to get it. I want God to give me this day my daily bread. And I want Him to recognize that compared to who He is and what He's done, I am nothing Apart from the way he has made me and what he has done. That's Mary's song. Mary's not special because Mary was this great young woman. Mary is special because God made her special. And God makes every one of us special. If he wasn't making you special, he wouldn't have bothered making you. He just wouldn't. Next. Jesus is a light to those who sit in darkness. That's the prophecy from the song of, of, uh, of, uh, of Zechariah. A light to those who sit in darkness. Question. Why would anybody want to sit in darkness when they can walk in the light? Please come back next week. Please join me in this study of Luke. Let's see how Luke bears out that Jesus is the light of the world. So that we don't have to sit in darkness and we can have true wisdom from his light. Final point from home. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. I want to find my rest and I want to find my peace in God. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for the, the promises you've made and the promises you keep. Father, we do not stand before you out of our own merit, out of our own worth, out of our own righteousness. We bow before you as you clean us from our righteousness. As you create in us clean hearts. As you manifest your righteousness in us. Father, we live a meaningless life absent the purpose you give us. And it is my prayer that we will praise you in that and walk humbly in your sight. Through Jesus our Lord. Amen.